My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Oh my gosh, here we're coming up. This is number 49. Next time is 50. Oh, and I've got, oh boy, do I have a great topic for number 50, but uh, uh, that is not to diminish what we are going to be discussing today. And I... Uh, <laughs> Frankly, I'm kind of amazed this happened. Uh, uh, my guest um, had a cold last week, and then I developed a cold like four or five days after that. And uh, you might still be able to hear it in my voice. I lost my voice for like two days. Uh, and today, my voice has been trying to push me into a Yoda impression all day. And that's just kind of where I've lived today. So uh, if I come out with, uh, you know, uh, a Yoda voice, or if I start speaking out of syntax, then you know I've got the Yoda virus. Um, so, hey, I'm going to introduce you to my guest today. This is somebody that I did some improv with way back in the day when I was in Seattle. She's still in Seattle doing improv and all kinds of other cool stuff. This is my good friend, Leona Partridge. Hello, Leona. Hello, Aaron. Hello, everyone out there. Thank you for listening. <laughs> oh, man. I am so glad that you were available to do this. And hey, this is kind of cool. This is Leona's first time being a guest on a podcast. Yeah, I'm a virgin podcast guest. So oh, we'll man. Smoke cigarettes afterward. I will treat you gently, I promise. So, Leona, I've been uh, checking it out. Uh, Leona is, uh, for some of my listeners who may have listened a few episodes ago, I had uh, Mr. Dan Poslins on, who was a, uh, uh, an ensemble member from the group uh, Unexpected Productions, an improv group in Seattle. And Leona is also part of the ensemble of yeah. Unexpected Productions. And I talked to her the other day and she goes, oh my God, I think I've been there 25 years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on the wall as a uh, beginning 1997. So that would make 25 years this year. 25. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. And so I uh, just in chatting with you before we started this, uh, you have been teaching improv now. How long has that go uh, uh -huh. been going on? Well, Unexpected Productions is pretty good about making us teach, right? Right. As soon as we know enough to uh, share. So yeah, I've been teaching <laughs> off and on at least 20 years. And mm. this is my favorite thing is uh, the high school. We have a high school tournament. It's called the Hogan Cup, named after one of the founding members of it, Jeff Hogan. Oh, and yeah. it's basically for sports for high school teams. Improv clubs from all the high schools are invited. And we have a tournament and they have a home match and a away match and they're scored. And then the top four have a final four down at the theater for a huge audience. Um, it is my favorite, my favorite thing to teach. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. 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 And, and I did keep, I did keep an improv club going during uh, the pandemic online Ooh, on zoom, cool. um, which I would say was probably one of my second favorite memories of teaching improv, just getting to getting to have that sharing with um, high school kids needing to connect when they couldn't be at school, it was really uh, yeah. heartwarming and very satisfying. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I've, I've talked about that a lot on this program, how this, this actually, this show came out of like, 
this need in theater uh, when pandemic is going on uh, for us to still connect and to tell stories yeah. and to feel present with other people. Um, one of my previous guests is my good friend, Stephanie Koltiska, who teaches dance at Sheridan College here in Sheridan. And uh, that was just amazing to me how she continued to teach dance yeah. through Zoom and everything. It's like, yeah. uh, okay, so I guess your kitchen counter is going to be your bar you stretch on. And yeah. yeah. So what kind of challenges did you find in that? And, and um, how did well, you overcome them? Yeah, obviously with high school kids, it's, it can be really hard for them to control their environment. So yeah. it would be it would be fun, you know, we'd be like, all of a sudden, one of the one of the kids might go mute and you see them looking at somebody in the room and they're <laughs> going back and forth. They're like, and we're all like, oh my gosh, they just got in trouble, you know, and then they come back, I got to go, I forgot to do my chores or whatever, and they, they would leave. <laughs> um, those, those kind of challenges, like interruptions were kind of fun, but also sometimes their parents or family members would want to watch the Zoom oh, class and have okay. fun. So, so there were some good things about that too but yeah I would say I would say definitely the technical stuff was probably the biggest challenge oh yeah the really yeah thing, just like this came, just like your show came kind of out birthed out of that period um a couple of the kids in the zoom club ended up going into film and and sound editing like they had so much fun they made little um shorts and comedy sketches and um yeah, it, so I think it's really cool how improvisers and a lot of creative people can take a crappy situation like being shut off, cut off from everyone. Right. And yes. Yes. Out how to still connect and be creative and have fun and collaborate. So. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, Aaron, I mean, we did that. you know, we did that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've talked about several different times when, you know, there were restrictions on theater in this program or, uh, you know, when, when it was difficult for people to actually do their art and they still just found a way around it. And I've just, that's just been amazing to me. And here, well, we got ours uh, in the form of nobody can leave and everybody has to wear a mask. <laughs> but yeah. awesome. Awesome. Well, Leona, that's great. I'm I'm glad you're still doing that. But um, so I thought of you today or for today's episode, because I was thinking of new types of episodes to do. And uh, I have done so many uh, crazy stories, so many weird stories, so many stories about different weird things that happened in theater. But it's been a long time since I've focused just specifically on plays, you know, the stories we tell. And so today, with your help, I'm going to deep dive into a play that maybe not a lot of people know but it's one that, you know, sometimes is studied and it kind of gets glanced, uh, glossed over as you're passing it in a textbook. So, Leona, are you ready for this? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Roll. Okay. So, Leona, I'm going to ask you a question as I want to do uh, of my guests when we begin. But how familiar are you with the Spanish Renaissance? Very little. Very little. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm familiar with the Renaissance, but if you were uh -huh. to, if you were to pinpoint it to the Spanish Renaissance, I would mm. say that would be a very small percentage of my brain that knows anything about it. And see, and you're not alone there. It's actually very fascinating that this is this is a very rich history little period of time here i mean when we talk about the renaissance oftentimes we think of like the italian renaissance or the british renaissance i mean most of us in theater are more familiar with the british renaissance and shakespeare and stuff like that yeah. but the spanish renaissance is happening just about the same time and some of the numbers i'm going to throw at you today leona are just uh kind of mind-boggling <laughs> so, so today we are going to do a deep dive on one particular play from 1614. And so putting that in reference, Hamlet was written, what, 1604, 1606, something like that. So this is right around the exact same time. Okay. Uh -huh. So we're going to deep dive on this one play from the Spanish Renaissance. I'm going to say it now, and we're going to hear it a whole bunch of times. But I have to say the name of the play, Fuentio Vejuna. Whoa. <laughs> One more Fuente time. Fuente 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 Fuente. Fuente. Yeah. 
Translated into English can either mean the sheep spring, the sheep fountain, or most likely the sheep well. And it's it's the name of a town where this very significant thing in history happened. So Fuente of Ahuna. But in order to deep dive, I got to give you a little bit of an update or at least kind of, you know, uh, upload the software, uh, you know, as though you're sitting in the chair in the matrix and uh, help you understand a little bit more about the Spanish Renaissance. Cause like I said, like you, not a lot of people know about it. Yeah. So the Spanish Renaissance, or as some people call it, the Spanish golden age from the Spanish term siglo de oro. It's a period of about 150 years of artistic, architectural and political innovation. And it followed the reorganization of the country after pushing out the Moors during the Reconquista, which was fought over 781 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, you know, we think about that like, you know, I think, did they did they finally declare an end to the war on terror? I mean, it was, right. you know, I mean. Something year period. Um, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, uh you know, a prior generation can remember the Vietnam conflict lasting 12, 14 years. It's like, well, we're just at war again this year. This is 781 years. Then we tend to have some very strong feelings about your neighboring countries after 700 long years <laughs> of war, right? Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. I think you're allowed to have actual enemies and yeah. hate people yeah. after that many years of war. Yeah. That's no Hatfields and McCoys, I'll tell you what. No, but, that is no. crazy. Yeah. So the Spanish Golden Age began in, guess what year? 1492. Oh. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yes. Okay. That's the year Columbus, air quotes, discovered the new world. And here we are yeah. recording in the last few days of November, Native American uh, Native American Heritage Month. Um, oh, boy. But here, here's some other things that made it more of a significant year, and that's this is like the stamp of when it starts. This was also the year that uh, uh, Spanish forces were able to see the defeat of the Nasrid dynasty, uh, which is a Muslim kingdom, when they fell at Grenada on January 2nd, 1492, and they were the last remaining Moors on the Iberian Peninsula. Wow. So, now, uh, it, it, I we have to talk about it because um, this did actually happen, and I'm not condoning this by any means, but I'm just stating the facts. This was also the year that Spanish forces were able to purge all of the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula as well. Yep. Okay. I mean, what what they were trying to do was make a truly unified Spain, uh, you know, something that had a nationality. So this is where nationalism gets you folks. Um, I mean, you might have some beautiful stuff that comes out of it, but you are <laughs> what unfortunately happened here, Leona is by chasing out the Moors and the Jews. Uh, they basically got rid of some of the strongest physicians in the country by getting rid of the Jews. And then some of the strongest mathematicians by getting rid of the Moors. <laughs> I mean, I don't know much about it, but like the history of mathematics, you can't talk about without talking about Moorish influence. It's wow. it's just obnoxious, like how much influence they had on modern mathematics. So anyway, um, so purging those people, what was left? It's one of my favorite Vegas terms from academia, arts and letters. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, that's arts just Arts and letters together. Um, 1492 was also the year of the publication of the book The Grammar of the Castilian Language by Antonio de De Nebrija. I I took four years of Spanish and I kind of know it. Um, (laughs) So the publication of this basically published to the world how the Spanish language should be spoken. So, you know, getting out there and saying we are staking you know i i claim this name of spain um but moreover it was the push of spanish influence as a newly united world power that was a little late to the renaissance party but they wanted to participate anyway okay so ending up the history here let's see spanish golden age ended with the treaty of the pyrenees which is the mountain range between uh spain and france 
Uh, and that ended the Franco-Spanish War, which waged from 1635 to 1659. A good 24-year war between your neighbors. Yeah. And But some say that the Siglo de Oro ended with the death of Spanish playwright uh, Pedro Calderón de la Barca, which was mm -hmm. the last of the greatest Spanish playwrights. Okay. Mm -hmm. In any case, the Spanish Golden Age is when several substantial developments occurred. The government solidified and united with the Habsburgs. Okay. <laughs> so now we've got allies and money. This was a significant time for naval supremacy as this was the era that included the Spanish Armada. Okay, yes. <laughs> painting began to be, uh, emerge with a more specifically Spanish identity, including painters like El Greco. Okay, mm -hmm. more terms we know. And a definitively Spanish architectural style emerged. But we wouldn't be talking about the Spanish Golden Age on this podcast unless there were some significant contributions to theater history during the Spanish Renaissance. Ha, ha. There. Okay. Exposition. Very good. Now <laughs> I, I have to just interrupt because one of my lifetime dreams is to visit Barcelona. Ooh, yes. And, and is that where the the Gaudi? Isn't there a famous, architecturally famous uh, cathedral? Oh. By excuse me, I don't know the first name, but Gaudi is the last I, name. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> I, of being built for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, do you think his, is his, well, I'm sure the golden age had an influence on his ancestors, if not him himself. I am not a Spanish historian. I don't know his, shouldn't even brought up his name because I don't know much about him. But I know- And, and I'll say it this way, well, like, right? I, I, I have no idea about architectural history at all. And I don't understand the significance of this at all, but there was something about, um, the architecture being now having like three distinct horizontal sections. So it would have to be several stories tall. Oh, and really? so it's like, okay, so that's the design of those buildings. We're going to make it specifically Spanish by making it three distinctions. It was wow. like, you know, uh, we made a new type of layer cake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I find architecture amazing stuff. So this is very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. For sharing. Yeah, absolutely. So, what was theater like in the Spanish Renaissance? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I, I'm friends with a lot of theater historical podcasters and everything. I'm going to be on one um, uh, next month, I think. But, and <laughs> the, for those of you listening who are theater uh, podcasters or theater historians, this is just a really big oversimplification. Uh, basically, what happened in the Spanish Renaissance is what happened in Britain during its Renaissance. It just basically happened like 10 to 30 years later. Okay. <laughs> and and in Spanish, but this is this is still fascinating to me. Their styles were so similar, but there was almost no like bleed over from one country to the other. They just mm -hmm. seemed to understand theater in the same way at the same time without really talking to each other. Yeah. It was so weird. Okay, so one of the more prominent theater style, styles in Spain was the autos sacramentales, which pretty much a lot like British morality plays, like every man, but we're not going to be really discussing those here today. They were just something that was done a lot. We're going to talk about secular plays or plays okay. generally presented to the general public. Now, this is crazy. I love this. Plays were performed six days a week excluding only Saturday and generally was watched by everyone. Yeah. No limits. No, I mean, women could actually be on stage. Uh, female playwrights could actually be on, uh, could be uh, staged and women would be seen in stage uh, or seen watching shows. In fact, <laughs> their um, little courtyard inns that they would make uh, or that they would do theater in, there was a section for the women basically above the snack bar in the back. Okay. <laughs> they were in the room. At least yeah. they were in the room as yeah. women. Oh, and they were rowdy. Like, you know, they'd go down oh. the snack bar and pick up a, like a whole uh, bag of fruit and stuff. And if they didn't like what was going on on stage, they would toss it. Toss awesome. their... Yeah, it was awesome. great. Yeah. yeah. So you got to keep the ladies happy. Yeah. 
And as far as secular plays are concerned, there were a ton of subgenres. Okay, no more of just this tragedy versus comedy things. There was like, I I, I think of like the Scarlet Pimpernel, you know, uh, masked men in capes and and, and swords. And then there were like corpse dramas where it would all be about a dead body or something like that. I mean, corpse drama. Yeah. Stories from the grave. Stories from the grave. (laughs) Exactly. There we go. (laughs) Tales from the crypt. Um, And Spanish playwrights took source material from a lot of different places to appease the taste of many. So it's very similar to Britain, you know, like King Lear was written about like this, you know, medieval king from the Dark Ages. Um, You know, on the comedic side, playwrights had plays very similar in structure to the comedy of manners from British Restoration before Britain could even come up with it. (laughs) So, and they even had a form that was really similar to sitcoms. Okay. <laughs> so you yeah. just go watch a live sitcom. It's yeah. great stuff. Like I, all of this is happening outside of British and Italian influence, which is crazy to me. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking if it's six nights a week and you have like this sitcom or this, you know, mm-hmm. melodrama, there's probably characters that the audience wanted to see come back or wanted to oh, see yeah. go away. Or, you know, they probably had some very strong opinions and big fans. And then the, and the playwrights would probably i would assume write more based on the oh man yeah approval or disapproval well as we're going to get into fuente of Yuhuna here in a little bit um being like characters from history that are classically bad you know like here we are uh, end of native american history month you know we could have a story that features General Custer as the bad guy, you know, and everybody would like, oh, I'd love to have him on stage because I love to hate him. Yeah, right. right? Okay. Um, Now, as far as the heavy stuff, playwrights in the Spanish Renaissance spent a lot of time pondering over the supernatural and the mystical, Mm. the nature of honor, especially how it related to the dealings between social classes. But we'll get more on that in a minute. (laughs) So, you know, there was just a lot of talk about what is honor? What is nobility? Uh, who is really noble and who is not? Um, so there's a lot of really cool definition of that and like, you know, taking stock in personal pride and stuff like that. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. And, like, and, you know, this is a continued conversation even today. Uh-huh. Yep. What, absolutely. what is honor? What is nobility? What is honorable? Yep. Absolutely. What is an honorable leader? What is an honorable uh-huh. uh, citizen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what blows my mind about the Spanish Renaissance is the sheer volume of works that came out of it. So by comparison, by comparison, let's say Shakespeare wrote mm-hmm. arguably 38 plays. There are some who say 37, some who say 39. With all the playwrights involved in Spain over about 150 years, some 30,000 works are known. Wow. <laughs> and many of them still survive today. Wow. 30,000. Well, I'm feeling like quite the village idiot for not even knowing <laughs> about the Spanish Renaissance, nor 30,000 playwright plays. Um, that That's, that's oh. amazing. Oh. Aaron, thank you for enlightening me. Hey, not a problem. Not a problem. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this play, though. Oh, my God. So here's a couple of examples of some playwrights and just how many works they did. Pedro Calderón de la Barca, who wrote Life is a Dream, which I want to talk about again some other day. It it was actually, I did that play in college, and it was one of my favorite roles I ever did. Uh, It was, this is a great story, Leona. This is where I figured out, I started to figure out type. <laughs> like, um, so the guy who uh gave me the namesake for the show, Tom Empey, who taught me at Casper College of Casper, Wyoming, he does this show and he's kind of feeding me like use this play to audition for other colleges. And he's giving me uh several monologues, but mostly like the main character. And I'm like, okay, cool. And we're thinking, uh, okay, we're gonna be doing this one next semester. So, all right, okay, I see where we're going here. You're kind of hinting that this could be the part I'm playing. I end up, I end up getting the bad guy, the villain, not the lead role. And I go to talk to him about it, and I'm like, okay, I'm I'm 20 years old. 
I don't really understand type. And I go to him, I go, it seems like you were kind of grooming me for that part. So why did we not go that way? He said, you would have made a damn fine lead, but there's literally nobody else who could play that part better than you out of who auditioned. Oh, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Right. And you're like, okay. So I start to think about that and it just kind of changed how I look at parts and roles and everything. It's like, you know what, out of everybody here, you're the best at what you are doing out of everybody who's in this group. And here we are at a point of when you cast a villain, I think a director needs to cast a villain as somebody that the audience could fall in love with as well. Like right. completely hated it has there has to be elements and so certainly you must have seen elements of you like ah the audience will love you and then have to hate you and they'll hate themselves for wanting you to (laughs) like well that's that's the drama of the villain this is an ongoing argument between my uh older son and i right now um he uh he is really into storytelling through a visual sense right now and is kind of thinking he would like to go into filmmaking someday um but you know uh the the new black panther movie just came out and it ended the mcu phase four and there's a lot of people looking at it right now and they're going yeah you know what was interesting about this is in the past the mcu has had kind of classically criticized weaker villains and through MCU phase four, the villains were the more interesting characters, the ones that you could empathize with, the ones that you could go, oh, I see your side and I kind of yeah. am rooting for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And whereas the heroes are just like, you're kind of killing the fun here, man. <laughs> anyway. Okay, making my, my deep cough is coming up on that one. Oh, damn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, at least I have... I haven't gotten to Yoda yet. Um, so, okay. So Pedro Calderón de la Barca, who wrote Life is a Dream, wrote 111 secular plays yeah. and 70 autosacramentales, those religious ones. Yeah. But who we're going to be talking about today is Lope Feliz de Vega Carpio, or as we know him today, Lope de Vega. Lope de Vega. 470 of his works survive. Gosh. But it's estimated that he wrote somewhere between 800 to 1500 plays plus 3000 sonnets. I mean, compare that to Shakespeare's 154. (laughs) And then, you know, you look at the, the, the history of these guys and they had like five different careers on top of just being a playwright. And I'm like, I think the Spanish figured out how to fill their time. (laughs) (laughs) Daily writers, for sure. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, What is it? Uh, Nano Remo? What is that? National Novel Writing Month? They just set aside one month. These guys all every day, all day. Um, So Lope de Vega, though, was often criticized. (laughs) I mean, I'm saying he has like 800 to 1500 works. He was often criticized because of the hasty output of his works, uh, often saying he worked more for quantity rather than quality. But that's okay, because early in his career, he published his definition of how drama should be written in the Spanish Golden Age. So he was just writing to his own formula. (laughs) Over and over again. And it more or less stuck, and people started to follow his rules of playwriting. So the type of secular play that Lope preferred to write in, uh, write in uh, it combined elements of tragedy and comedy. And this may be where we first get the term tragicomedy. Wow. But, uh-huh. but in Spanish, the term was later abbreviated to comedia, but still maintaining both tragic and comic elements. Um, Lope spurned any fealty towards the three unities of time, place, and action because he thought that completely limited the the playwright and the storytelling capability. Um, I might have, yeah, I think I did. Uh, in one of my episodes, I think it's number seven, uh, I talk about uh, El Cid, which is a, a French play uh, in which uh-huh. a whole revolution happens and everything all in one day. Wow. <laughs> like, hey, the long day. <laughs> we, that was a big day. Um, so by getting rid of time, place, and action, 
Lopi defined that an action of a play did not have to take place within a 24-hour time period. They could be set, a play could be set in more than one place, and there could be more than one general plot line. We'll see that as we get into Fuecha Vihuna. Plus, being able to have several locations and several plot lines allowed for the plays to be episodic in nature, and different plot lines usually ended up resolving by the end over the course of only three acts. That's it. And the and the plot lines were solved by the same action at the end. So it's like you wrote in a deus ex machina for every show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, isn't that, that is one of like in improv, that's one of the last things you want to do, right? Is like just have the magic fix all, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They always say uh, you can end us, you can end a scene pretty quick with a gun or a kiss, gun, a kiss or a fight. Yep. That's, you know, it's over. Yeah. You're done. You're done. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody does the mask rip off and reveal and you're like, oh, God, I've been guilty of that a few times. Um, Now, for Lope, this ending action for him usually was a very happy one, such as a a marriage or, you know, somebody actually earning a a crown that they had been spurned of, um, despite what has happened to the characters in the story leading up to that. So it's very different than like, uh, Shakespeare comedies where conflict is all solved by a marriage <laughs> completely, <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. So all that crunched in. Are you ready for Fuencho Vihuna? I want some tragic calm. Tragic oh, comedy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. This is so great. Okay, so here's a little bit of exposition for this story. This is actually a retelling of a true story in Spanish history. And since it took place a little over a century before the play was written, there may have been some artistic license taken, but likely not too much. But in 1476, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabel, you know, who dispatched Columbus. I know about them, yeah. Yep. They had married by 1476, and they joined the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, and had begun to work their way to uniting Spain and claiming supremacy over the entire Iberian Peninsula. But there is another country on the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal. Yes. And the king of Portugal was basically trying to do the same thing, unifying all of the Iberian Peninsula, but under his rule. So he had this fighting order of military men known as the Order of the Calatrava. And their their symbol, their sigil was like a black background with a red cross on it. Yeah. Um, the, master, the master of the Calatrava was a 20-something kid who had inherited the role after the person above him died, but apparently he was a pretty feisty little general. And so they're like, yeah. all right, we'll, we'll just allow him to have it. <laughs> like a Justin Bieber of the... Uh... Yes. Of the army. <laughs> oh my god that's exactly so what talent. i'm picturing now <laughs> yeah yeah now underneath uh this master was uh something of a lieutenant fernan gomez de guzman hereafter we'll call him the commendador which is like his rank so that's the background okay 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 The play opens in the home of the master, who is begging congratulations from the commendador on his recent promotion, which, as we now know, he only earned due to an older member of his family dying. (laughs) But he's basically saying, well, I mean, if he didn't die, I was going to I was going to get it anyway. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So. They talk about how easily they will defeat Ferdinand and Isabel and just how and how just it was that the master has earned his position. The commendador tells the master that he has settled in a quaint little town known as Fuente Vihuna, and he'll be ready when the master launches the planned attack on Ciudad Real, the royal city, where Ferdinand and Isabel are. Okay. Yeah, let's get up. Yeah. yeah. All right. We then cut to the town square of Fuente Vihuna where we meet some of the townsfolk who are only given the characteristic of being peasants. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So right away we're hearing, okay, we've seen these two people high up in the military in grand fashion. And now we're comparing and contrasting them to these lower folks, right? Yeah. One of these peasants is 
Lorencia, and who, after reading this play again, has become one of my favorite bad boss bitch characters in all of literature. Oh, wow. oh my God. Like this girl. Okay. Uh, anyway, like I was suggesting, Lope uh, establishes a very clear class structure in these two opening scenes. Um, in the first scene, you know, like I said, we have military men patting themselves on the back, planning where lines will lay on the map after much blood has been shed. Then in the following scene, you know what these peasants talk about? <laughs> no, tell me. Well, first, Lorencia and her friend Pasquala talk about how they are concerned about the habitation by the commendador as they state he is a voracious womanizer by reputation. Sure. Yeah, right? Great. And he's been known to use his power for personal gain. Hmm. And, and, yeah, right? Uh, they're concerned with how their honor will be defended, which culminates in Lorencia's line, trust no man that comes to woo. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they are joined by some men, including Frondoso, who is very much in love with Lorencia. Oh. Once, once they enter... The conversation turns to a rather comedic view of euphemistic language okay. and how it can deeply underplay circumstances. And here's just a sampling. Yes, it's the fashion and the law which euphemizes every flaw. The fat man's, quotes, well set up. The lean is slim and graceful in his mien. The fledgling scholar still at college is called a doctor for his knowledge. The stone blind has a visual failing. The squint eyed has a roving glance. <laughs> and here's, here's the best one. The cripple does not like to dance. <laughs> and it goes on like this for a long time. So, I mean, you can see the difference here. And it's like, these ah. people are more relatable and likable and everything. So it's setting you up a little bit for seeing like, these are the people you're going to be rooting for in the end. Um, and let's see. I mean, it's just some pretty effective stage setting of the stage, kind of hinting at where the audience should go. Soon after, the commendador arrives with a train of musicians who announce his coming. I mean, they have this ridiculously long song that they sing. Yeah, and a big to-do was made about this big, bad, famous military man coming in, uh, being associated with the town. You know, it's like in any small town when a celebrity yeah. might be moving in, you know, yeah, okay. They're back, yeah. Yeah. However, once all the pomp and circumstance quiets down, the commendador dispatches his highest servants to procure a few women from the crowd to entertain him. Great, yeah. Yeah, and that's okay. Play. That part's in the play. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he comes out and he says, hello, yes, thank you, Hello, thank everybody. you, okay, let's disperse and go get me some girls. Okay. Yeah. yeah. However, the crafty women are able to get away. Okay. It's good for them. The next scene takes place in the court of Ferdinand and Isabel, who now become actual characters in this play. Wow. <laughs> I Fun. And, I bet. and I imagine when they brought those characters out, the audience mm -hmm. goes crazy. I mean, they would have been like huge and, and yeah. yeah. People were I mean, crazy. Oh yeah, throwing absolutely. Throwing or whatever, throwing yep. their milk yeah. made, milk, they're throwing <laughs> their milk belts. <laughs> milk belts. Oh. Okay, so Ferdinand and Isabel now actually become characters in the play and, and uh, they discuss the current state of affairs in which they choose to mobilize and strike at the forces of the King of Portugal. Of course, this then would dispatch the Commendador from Fuenchovahuna, where we return. So really, it's just setting into motion. We're going to take the Commendador away for just a moment because he's mm -hmm. got to go fight, okay? The next scene we find Lorencia and Frondoso in the woods outside of town where Frondoso declares his love and his intent to ask her father for his blessing on their marriage. Through some clever wordplay worthy of Shakespeare's funny women like Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing or the cleverness of Jessica in The Merchant of Venice, Lorencia more or less <laughs> accepts Frondoso's proposal. Kind of, okay. so yeah. you know, when you actually officially ask it, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe do it. Right. So she doesn't say no. She just, 
Oh, it's so it's so funny how coy she is with it. Like you can just see the little smirk in her in in every one of her lines. It's just great. The joy is interrupted quickly by the sight of the commendador approaching. Knowing that the commendador is only approaching to make a request for her quote company, Lorencia suggests that Frondoso hides in the bush and she'll be able to brush him off pretty easily. Believing she is alone, the commendador has just returned from hunting and sets down his crossbow so he has so he can attempt to acquire Lorencia with both his hands. The situation quickly gets out of Lorencia's control. And at this point, Frondoso jumps out of the bush and grabs the crossbow, threatening to kill the commendador unless he leaves Lorencia alone. The commendador reluctantly complies. Lorencia escapes off stage, and for the briefest of moments, we believe that Frondoso is still going to kill the commendador. But thinking better of it, he drops the crossbow and runs off after his love. The commendador pouts, <laughs> realizing he has just been completely embarrassed. That's act one. Okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. So you see, we're really yeah. building up some awesome tension here. And we're like, yeah. how is this going to turn out? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, what we've talked about so far has kind of been a little tense, you know, it's like, Ooh, wow. Okay. So we have some events here that are going to set bigger things in motion. The beginning of act two takes place in the town square again, where the commendador interrupts a conversation between a group of villagers that includes Esteban, who is the mayor of Fuente Vihuna and the father of Lorencia. The commendador is pretty passive aggressive in demanding that Esteban surrender up Lorencia to him. Wow. Hey, dad, you should just give me your daughter. Yeah. Don't you know who I am? Yeah. Cool, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and he actually says that He's surprised she hasn't just thrown herself at him, mainly based on who he is and the power that he has. Esteban denies the request, obviously. In fact, all of Esteban's friends around him basically admonish the commendador to his face. You know, they aren't wicked about it. They're just like, do you hear yourself right now? You know? <laughs> so here, here's a great little exchange between the commendador and a couple of the guys. Commendador says, do I pollute your blood then if I join my blood with it? Ooh. Response, yes. When it's found with lust, your blood's unclean. <clears throat> Commendador responds, but surely you'll admit I do your wives great honor when I woo them. Uh, yeah. Esteban says, your words dishonor you. We can't believe them. And what you said at first, forget that too. <laughs> just like, bro, just... You're being yeah, don't yourself. Yeah. 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 So once denied, the commendador then insults the intelligence of all of the citizens of Fuente Vihuna. Tell me they uprise and attack him. Do they attack him? Well, I guess they can't. They're under well, his. Yeah, it's a little tricky. Um, and uh he really goes after Esteban, and then he demands that everybody leave him alone <laughs> so he can be left with his servants. <laughs> I mean, this is this is that temperamental actor on set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everybody out, out. <laughs> now, Leave me be. Yeah, and all of the villagers are like, okay, well, fine. So they leave, and the commendador recounts and jokes with his servants about several of the married women in other towns he's been to, to and he's been able to have access to them, even with the permission of their husbands. I mean, this is just. You know this guy could kill you, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But soon, he's the in conqueror. oh yeah, yeah, he's absolutely the uh, colonizer. Um, but soon, in response to Ferdinand and Isabel's military action, the scene that took place a few scenes ago, a soldier comes in with orders for the commendador to return to enact countermeasures in the Ciudad Real. And I looked this up. This is actually relatively close. It's only about. By car, Fuente Vahuna and Ciudad Real are only about two and a half hours away. So okay. if he gets on his horse, he's going to be there by the end of the day and do whatever he I needs do. to. Yeah. And like I said, I just mentioned this so that we can understand something of the episodic nature of this play. This yeah. isn't all happening yeah. in like one day. Right. Okay. The next scene in Act 2 takes place in the countryside just outside of city limits. Lorencia is fleeing the town after the crossbow incident. 
okay? Yeah. As she just does not feel safe knowing that the Commendador is around. She is chased after by two other peasants, Pasquala, her friend from earlier, and a simple, na- simple man named Mango, who both try to convince <laughs> Lorencia to stay. <laughs> Mango. And it's spelled, it. it's M-E-N-G-O, but it's oh, pretty much Mango. the same. Mango. Mango. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this exchange, Lorencia compares the Commendador to Heliogabalus, a Roman emperor whose reign was smeared with sex scandals. Yeah. So you have this peasant woman who has this profound knowledge of Roman emperors. Yeah. Like, okay, now I have even more reason to respect you and like you more. Yeah. She says she, the commended door is worse. She's badass. She's yeah. she's got she's got brains, power, and a, a fighting spirit. Like and wit. Yeah, and I could see the audience, women especially, just loving her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When he, you know, mean all their children, Lorencia. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. Soon, they encounter a woman named Jacinta, who has just basically been kept prisoner at the Commendador's home, and she has escaped. Wow. Okay, she begs the three for assistance as she is being pursued by two of the Commendador's servants. Unfortunately, both Lorencia and Pasquala fear that they will be of no help, as they believe they are also being pursued by the servants. So they unfortunately leave Jacinta with only Mango to defend her. Mm. And and Mango is so cute. He is like they they portray him as really lovable, but he's pretty dim witted. Um, yeah. So I can't like there's it feels like there's a Looney Tunes character like that, but <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> You know, heart of gold, but brains of rocks. Um, now, the Commendador's servants named Flores and Ortuño, these are the guys that he always has go out and get stuff for him. They arrive shortly after that and demand that Jacinta be remaindered to their care. Mango refuses. The Commendador shows up then and demands that his servants subdue and restrain Mango for keeping him from his prey and for forcing him to dismount to settle the situation. So Mango kind of like a little Elmer Fudd. Yes, yes, I, yes. And 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 a nice Elmer Fudd. He's not trying to kill a rabbit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's just like, you can't touch my friend. Mango is then apprehended by the servants and is headed for a torture fest. Uh. I mean, the way they describe how often he is beaten is like he has lines of black across his back. You know, it's just uh, he gets just destroyed and Jacinta is dragged off with him. Hmm. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to try to bring it up here. The next scene takes place in Esteban's house where Lorencia has returned to get things to flee. But she soon discovers Frondoso there who finally proposes and she accepts. Yay. Oh, okay. All of a sudden, a pretty good offer. <laughs> yeah, okay. But the real test is to get Esteban's blessing. And I guess that's just custom. Like, you got to get dad to, yeah. to yeah, say, cool. yeah, okay. And Esteban very soon uh, gives his blessing as well. And there's some very lighthearted banter about marriage to kind of cleanse the palate from all the ugliness we've been privy to yeah. so far, especially yeah. with the prior scene. With no time to waste, all the townsfolks are gathered the same day in the town square to witness the marriage of Lorencia and Frondoso. And it's, it seems like there's not much more, you know, you don't, I guess they didn't need a priest or anything. It's just the dad was there and he said, do you, do you? Yes. Yes. Cool. You're done. Got my blessing. And, Go. And that's kind of how it went. And there's a <laughs> bunch of really great rhetoric about what makes good poetry good and bad poetry bad, culminating in the idea that if the intent is true, the ability to adequately deliver the words isn't as important as the message itself. Mm. So precious. Like, you're right. You're like, oh, good. We're getting back to this like nice uh, country living, simple, simple yeah. philosophies. It yeah. just feels great. The problems of the world aren't that big anymore. Yeah. Your heart's in the right place. Yeah. Life is good. Yeah. Lorenzi and Frondoso are barely declared husband and wife when the Commendador shows up to see what all the hubbub is. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. 
when he finds out that his prize has been married to someone who he believes tried to kill him, remember the crossbow incident? Well, he's having none of that. He arrests Frondoso on site, and then Lorenzo and Esteban are arrested thereafter for protesting Frondoso's arrest. Okay. Now, I mean, come on. Like, okay, I'm going to take the two guys I've had a beef with up to this point, and they're going to be out of the picture. Oh, and then I guess I get the girl, too. Yeah. The remaining townsfolk are all dumbfounded and afraid of what will happen if they raise their voices against the Commendador. They just don't know what to do. Yeah. And uh, that's act two. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So what do you think is going to be happening here, Leona? Whoa. (laughs) <laughs> like it, in in the third act what do i think is going to happen or what uh-huh. um well yeah, I think, maybe what do you hope would happen well i think florencia is going to put up a big fight i mean this mm-hmm. girl's going to fight that's that's my belief uh, i think i okay i think that's going to be sacrificed i think Ooh, that okay i just if it's if it's a dark comedy um <laughs> Uh, dad, you know, maybe I've just watched too many Disney films, but yeah, I think dad's gonna go. Um, what is it with Disney and dad's? I know, I pull off. <laughs> um, I, I mean, she's gonna put up a fight. Uh, will she, will she succeed? Possibly. Mm. Will, will, her, will she be, um, will her honor be saved by her husband? Well, maybe he mm. will be injured as well. Um, mm. but I think he'll okay. die fighting for her. Or he, I, I, he might not die, but I think he'll he'll definitely show his honor, fight for her. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah. Well, Act Three is pretty compact, but I'm going to do my best to summarize without diminishing the story because it's pretty epic. Uh, so the third act begins with the men of the town meeting later to discuss how they are going to handle the situation with the Commendador. There's no governmental office that can help him because basically they are not under any country's rule at this time. Their two sides are still fighting. Yeah. However, these discussions are interrupted quickly by Lorencia, who has managed to subvert all of the Commendador's security measures and escape. Wow. And herein, she gets her Joan of Arc moment, which is... Leona, I sent you a monologue last night. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that I was like, I'm not going to tell you what this is from. And just That's I just perfect. want you to see the beauty of this poetry and everything. So uh, basically, can can you summarize what uh, is going on in this monologue? Oh, wow. Well, so is this, hold on. Her monologue is to the townspeople? To the or townspeople, it, to the entire townspeople, including her father. Including her father. She's yeah. basically saying, you allowed me to be taken to the wolves. You allowed me to be handed over. You were not there for me when I needed you. Yeah. Um, and she talks about, do you see that my hair is torn out? Uh, cuts and bruises. She describes herself. And you you consider yourself true men? She says, "Oh, ooh. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's a little bit of like uh, some unfortunate like uh, weakening of the feminine power in that she's comparing all of them to sissy boys and Nancy boys and stuff. Uh, <laughs> like to use the word like Nancy boy or something. Yes. She does Nancy boys and sissies. Yeah, chicken-hearted uh-huh. Nancy boys and sissies. You're spinning. You're spinning wheel gossips and ooh. effeminate cowards. Ooh, yeah." Uh, and I did have to kind of edit this a little bit so you did not uh, kind of guess the, you know, uh, the name yeah, of yeah. the place. But she says, basically, yeah, this the t- name of the town is Fuente Vihuna, the sheep well, because that's where all the sheep come to yeah, drink. <laughs> uh, uh, she, so, so basically, this is her moment to shame all of them into action. Yes. I love the last lines of that monologue. I mean, it's huge. It's like a page and a half. So she says, um, the commendador is going to hang Frondoso up to die. Uh, yeah. And uh, and, that, and that's going to happen soon. And I hope it happens to all of you because then all of the women will be ridded from the town. And then those like me will remain and thus become a town of Amazons like me to be the wonder of the age. 
Right. (laughs) All the women will be gone when all the men are hung. And now Uh it'll be a town of Amazons like me. Yeah. Yeah. Like like freaking Valkyrie. I mean, God. They should make this into a movie, Aaron. Oh, it should. It should. It's such a great story. Oh, okay. Here's, oh, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. The men, thus shamed, grab what weapons they have and lay siege to the home of the commendador. Okay. And end up killing him and one of his servants. And I think the way it's described is like he is thrown off of like the battlements of a castle and like lands on spears or a fence or something like that. So it is a nasty death. Well deserved. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in this scene, we do get to see Lorencia become something of a battlefield leader of the women of Fuente Vejuna. They are actually the ones who kill the servant Ortuño. And this is great. I haven't mentioned this. Um, Any of the violence that we've talked about, any of, you know, Mengo getting whipped, um, you know, Lorencia being beaten and everything when, uh, or, you know, her hair being ripped out, it all happens offstage. We don't see it. It's either described later after the violence has occurred, or it is heard offstage. (laughs) Which is pretty much what happens when they kill Ortuño. They must have had a lot of uh, watermelons and gourds to stab or, you know. Yeah, something like, you know, break a coconut with a hammer or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. in the next scene, the townsfolk all gather in the square with the head of the commendador Whoa. to rejoice in their victory over oppression. They then bear the standard of Ferdinand and Isabel above the town hall because it was the enemy of the commendador, mainly yeah. all completely in rejection to the order of the Calatrava. Yeah. But they also realize they just killed a very important man. so it is decided that when an official inquiry is finally dispatched and when anyone here i'll say it this way ferdinand and isabel took over the spanish inquisition so it was still ongoing if you're not as catholic as they wanted you to be they'd string you up and do awful stuff so Mm -hmm. they know that something like this is coming Okay? okay so They all decide that when anyone is asked who killed the commendador, anyone is to reply, Fuente Vahuna did it. The entire town. So that not one person gets it. So no matter what, if you are put to torture, keep saying Fuente Vahuna did it. Fuente Vahuna. And they're not wrong. This is exactly what happens. Ferdinand and Isabel hear about this insurrection and send a judge to wring the truth out of the small town. So the judge goes to the town, conducts investigations, often quite brutally. Like they, oh. they, they put old men, young boys, everybody to torture. And I think Mango is even one of them. And he, he stands his ground. Everybody says, Fuente Vahuna did it. And the judge doesn't know what to do. And the people all cheer and praise all these people. They're like, you have earned a drink for putting yourself on the rack. (laughs) The news is then sent back to Ferdinand and Isabel in their chambers where the final scene takes place. The master who oversaw the commendador is pardoned as it was determined that the commendador acted out of his own ambition rather than under orders from the master. Lorencia, Frondoso, and Esteban then come in to state their case about the commendador. There is a really cute moment where Lorencia fangirls about the king and the queen. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I've heard about you. It's so cute. But in, but in the end, having heard all of the evidence and that the town collectively rose up against tyranny, the entire town of Fuente Vahuna is pardoned. Oh, yay. End of play. Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a huge uproar the audience must have given at the end oh of this play. Oh, my God. Every oh. virtuous 
every virtuous uh, resistance, every every um, township that's ever fought for anything. It must have yep. been just a, a wonderful hero's story. Oh. Well, and, 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 and you got to think it's it's a true story. Like this is not that far back in history for these people. This happened in 1476. This play was first put on in 1614. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I, you know, in an era where it's like we focus on a singular character or, you know, what are what are the motivations of, I'll bring him back up again, a, a King Lear. You know, you're looking yeah. at the one character instead of. This is what an entire people would do when faced with oppression. And yeah. sure, it is a singular antagonist, but yeah. I just love that that how it goes. Like the protagonist yeah. is a people. Yeah. <laughs> it, it should be a film. I love it. Right? You're such a good storyteller. I, I love the way you told this and set it up and the three <laughs> parts, the three acts. I mean, it, it could make a great screenplay. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this this just there's so much so much goodness to this, and and the fact the thing is, this is just one of hundreds of plays that still exist from the Spanish Renaissance, and you know, here we are rehashing like Shakespeare's works over and over again. Not that we shouldn't, but I'm I'm just saying like there's other stuff out there. I look at this and I'm like, God, I would love Trident to do this sometime. I think it would be very easy to put together and and um and just an amazing show to do. Yeah. But you know, I, I I talked about Life as a Dream earlier. Here's here's kind of the overview of that show. Okay. I was talking about mysticism and nobility, right? So an old, old, old king is getting ready to uh, relinquish his throne, and he has two options. Uh, they are not his direct bloodline. One of them is his nephew. One of them is his niece. And we find out that these two cousins are kind of possibly incestuous with each other, but, you know, as it happens back then. Um, on the day he's ready to abdicate his throne, this old king goes, surprise, I actually do have a son. I went to a soothsayer uh, soon after he was born and asked what kind of a king he was going to be. And they said, well, uh, sorry to tell you this. I've looked at the stars and he's going to overthrow you. And so this old king goes, well, I can't have that. So he locked his son up in a tower in the mountains. (laughs) But then he goes, Ah, you know, maybe I was a little hasty in doing that. And so he brings his son back. His son is like freaking Tarzan. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's he's learned how to get himself in great shape and, uh, and is just wily. Yeah. Yeah. Now there are a couple pretty questionable parts in it. Like he actually takes advantage of some girl at some point and uh, the, uh, the king is like, oh, well, this obviously didn't work out. But we see that this this guy who has been pushed away, taken away from everything because of some mystic saying that he was going to overthrow him, he learns how to capture the heart of the people and lead a resistance against this king and then does eventually overthrow him. So he still did do exactly what the soothsayer said. But the king then looks at him and he went, you actually did that really well. <laughs> you utilized all of your resources. You gained the hearts of the people and you became an effective leader. That was the part that was not told to me. <laughs> so yeah, it's okay. You can have the throne now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great story. You're a, leader. You're a great leader. Yeah. 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 And, 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 I, I just love these stories where they're really, really looking at what it means to be a good person instead of like yeah. forcing down some scriptural morality or, you know, script in, uh, scriptural inspired morality. You know what I mean? It's just, no, really, uh, when you uh, shake it down, what does it mean to be good? Well, this is good stuff. Um, and so is that the play that you had the role in? Uh, life is a dream. Yeah, I was actually the 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 nephew who he was the Duke of Muscovy, and I had this great chest plate and a great long cape and great long black hair, and I had to learn how to fight with an epee, and it was great. Oh, how fun! <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Fuenchovuna, I would love to do that someday. 
I mean, the unfortunate thing is it's called Fuente Vahuna. <laughs> so you put that on a poster, nobody's going to know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. You have to have it translated as, or, you yeah. Know, the story of. And, and how about Lorencia? Yeah. Good right? Lord. What an amazing character. Like, cute funny and and very witty in the beginning and then very crafty and exacting trying to get out of it still gets taken advantage of and then comes out of it and says all of you men ain't shit yeah, you're like, you're like <laughs> f you and yep. everybody who raised you <laughs> yeah exactly and then they're like okay i guess we'll go have an insurrection <laughs> yeah i love the power of shame especially in that culture right i mean the the power of shame like we've been uh our manlyness has been in question and we must now you know vindicate our own manliness we must fight even if we don't yeah. want to he's embarrassed yeah. us badly we have to we have to now oh, for exactly man. what you said yeah yep well well, there we go, Leona. Fuente Vihuna. What'd you think? Fuente It was so wonderful. I loved it. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I've just been the audience to a, a wonderful story. Like you, you are a very good storyteller. <laughs> well, thank you. I love all the uh, inter interjections of history and you know just like the little elements of facts that you added in. Oh. But, uh, that was just incredible. Yeah, I love it. I just love that story. I just love that story. Well, any final thoughts on that? Well, can all women, can we all just be Amazons? Woo! Yeah. I, I love that. The Amazons and I will stick stick around and vengeance our town. If there's any any more question about the battle of the sexes, look, um, women got it, okay? Uh, if men had to give birth, <laughs> <laughs> women are designed to handle uh, pain and stress. Men, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, I get I, I get told I'm a terrible patient when I even have a little bit of a cold, and I don't know if you can relate yeah. with your husband or not. But uh. <laughs> well, I just think we all have we have different strengths, yeah, right. And 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 we talk about battle of the sexes, and you know, it's like it's my dream that we just all find the strengths that each other has and cherish those and and, and nurture those and build those up. There's plenty of room for all of us at the table to be yes. uh, honored and built up. And it's like, there's this sort of a backlash against men right now. Like, mm -hmm. like, like we told you women were equal. We told you. And so because you didn't act fast enough, you're going to suffer now. But it's just like, women can kind of like, okay, here we are. We are equal. Yeah. And let's get back into that. Uh, making each other look good and making the best come from each other so that we can move forward for the next generation to celebrate, celebrate who you are and all the strengths that you can yes. not only contain, but share with each other. And, yes. and you're not, and you're not in compete. You're not competing with each other. You're collaborating. That's, Ooh. that's my dream. I have, oh, I, I just came up with this, Leona. Uh, uh, great way to end this. And in spirit of what you were just saying and, and getting the mini and finding the strengths and, and everything, <laughs> it takes a village. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a village. And the village is? Wancho <laughs> Vehuna. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, Leona, thank you so much for being on the program today. I really appreciate it. I hope we can get you on again sometime. It was really fun was to have you on. Um, but for my listeners, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, ending another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. We'll get another one out to you in another couple of weeks, and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>